0: So, Eric, if you want to get on my schedule this week, we can talk a little bit about the role of HR coming up. <laughs> Eric said that he, um, he heard thunder. I don't, I don't preach here very often, um, but if he's hearing thunder on the Sunday that I'm here preaching, I got to tell you, it makes me a little nervous being up here. So, if, if, um, if you all hear it again, you just may want to duck, um, especially those of you up here in the, in the, front, in the front row don't know what's, what's coming. It is good to be with you, and um, despite what you hear today, you do have to come back next week, and I will look forward to, to seeing you then, but it is a joy to be with you this day. In many and various ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets, but now, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. If you will pray with me, O oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock, our Lord, our Redeemer. Amen. If you want to follow along and you have your Bible on your phones or, or, or um, with you, it, it is uh, John chapter 4 that we're going to be taking a look at today. Uh, it's page 1140 in those brown Bibles that we have, if that's a little easier for you and gets you to the right page. Um, and we're going to take a look at, at this story that, that is so familiar The text for today that we're going to be focusing on comes from the early part of that story. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town called Sychar, a Samaritan village that bordered on the field that Jacob had given his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, worn out by the trip, sat down by the well. A woman came to draw water, and Jesus said, Give me a drink. You know, this past weekend is one of those weekends of the where were you when kind of conversations that, that all take place in our world. There's been there's been a few of those events, and and you know them. The the JFK assassination, certainly, and and um nine one nine one one. Um, the Beatles on Ed, I'm really, really dating myself here, but the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, and yes, I do remember some of, some of those things. But this weekend, it, it was, and I'm sure you know by now, that 50-year marking, that anniversary of Apollo 11 um, landing on, on the moon. I, I vividly remember where I was that day. It was my sister's second birthday party. And we were gathered in in the living room of my house in Milwaukee and we were gathered around the black and white TV. And I will forever remember the seat that I was in and who was sitting next to me and the shades that were drawn and watching that very fuzzy black and white picture being broadcast on the TV in those words. Tranquility base, the eagle has landed. And almost in unison, All the folks in my family raised a glass in the air, clinked it to the person next to them, and they cheered. They cheered. This incredible, remarkable event that had taken place. Cheers, and we laughed and danced and were happy. My family has a history of, of clinking, clinking glasses together. We clink for everything. We clink for everything. When I was growing up, with everyone. You came to my house, you were getting clinked. If, 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 it, it, it made me, it, it actually, you know, made me think. I'm a pastor. I've been, I've been in a lot of events where clinking was kind of what was going on. Weddings, for example. And, and over the years, I've thought, you know, is there a clinking etiquette? I mean, like, if you're, if you're sitting at a wedding... Do you just clink with the person next to you? Or do you try to clink with everybody around the table, and then how long that all takes? If you have a glass of water, do you clink with someone who has a glass of wine? And to be politically correct, in this day and age, do you just shun the people who have Diet Coke? Or do you clink with them too, who who, who are sitting at the table with you? These are the mysteries of life. I grew up in Milwaukee. My, My grandfather grew up nearby, and... And he had a clinking tradition all of his own. Every day when he came home from work, he would grab um, a glass and have a glass of beer. Can I talk about beer? I'm going to talk about beer in my sermon. He'd have a glass of beer at the end of the day. Um, He would grab his Schlitz, which is not the beer that made Milwaukee famous. He grabbed salt, true story, and a raw egg. And I would sit next to him, because, yes, I was as fascinated as you are by what he was going to do with that. And every night, he would crack the egg on the side of the glass, raw egg, in his beer, sprinkle salt on the top so the foam rose up, and he'd clink with anyone who was close by, whether I had milk or orange juice or prune juice, believe it or not. He, we, would clink, we would clink glasses. Cheers, he would say. Cheers, he would say. Clinking of glasses. Well, I was getting ready for that, you know, I thought, where does this come from? And there's, there's debate about whether or not this is, there's, this is true and real, but it, it is out there. It's on the internet, so there's some truth to it. The, the <laughs> clinking of glasses actually goes back to medieval times. When wine, some say Schlitz beer, when wine was often spiked with poison... Because the sediment on the bottom of the glass could actually hide the poison. So you, you wouldn't see it. And so if the host wanted to prove that the wine wasn't poisoned, he would pour the guest's wine into his own glass and he would drink it first. So the guest would hold up his glass and the host would come over, pour some of the wine from the guest's glass into his, clink, and he would drink it to prove to prove, I guess, that the guests like, wouldn't, wouldn't die before the hors d'oeuvres came, came out or, or something like that. I'm not really sure I would go to a lot of dinner parties if I, if I lived back then. So over time, as, um, as, as poisoning your dinner guests became less popular, the, um, the tradition just kind of continued. The clinking of glasses, the, the wishing joy and goodness to your dinner guests, well, that, it just, it just kind of stuck. So Cheers to you. We're in week three of the sermon series called Hidden Figures. This morning I'd like to talk about the story of a hidden figure that you know, who may seem not hidden to you, because we, we have heard this story so often that we, we know it by heart. You know what happens here. It's the story of the woman whom Jesus meets at the well, and she is hidden partly because we don't know who she is, but based on the conversation she had with Jesus that one afternoon, we think we know her story. But do we? Listen again. Because perhaps for this hidden figure, we can hear a story that will open for us a door that we haven't considered before. Throughout history, women have gone unseen and unnoticed. Political, social, religious biases and, and rules have often hidden them and, and pushed their stories to the margins of, of history. The world, even the church, over the centuries has marginalized some of the greatest, history, greatest stories and women of, of the Bible. But reaching from those pages of, of Scripture in, into our world today, the story of the woman at the well shows us the truth that even the disciples struggled to see. We don't know her name, we don't know her specific circumstances, but we do know the world in which she lived. And it was a world that was very different, but yet very much the same as ours. Historians have often painted the woman at the well as the chief of sinners, the talk, the embarrassment of the town because of what she had done. My friends, I'd like to suggest that there's another more faithful and significant way to read the story of this hidden figure. To say it straight out, this is a story of ethnic prejudice. You really can't understand what God is doing here unless you understand that. This woman, at the moment that we meet her at the well, is living on the margins of society and life. What is happening that summer day in Samaria... It's something we can picture. The heat is blazing. It is dry. It is windy. It is hot. It is not a good time to be out in the sun. It is just oppressive. It is difficult to breathe. And yet, in the middle of that blistering heat, she grabs a water jug, a large ceramic jug that she carries on her shoulder, and she comes to the well. There are a lot of reasons that she came at noon. The only one that mattered is that she wanted to be there alone. Not noticed. As you will soon hear, she was married and then not, and then she was married and, and then not for four times. And she was now living with a fifth man who may or may not have been her husband. And she was shunned for that. And they looked at her and they judged her like we do. Five times married? I mean, it seems like if you can't get it right in the first four, well, then, you know, what's the point? So she came alone. What the story assumes is that you know a little bit about how marriages worked back then and how they were ended. Women were never allowed to initiate a divorce except on the grounds of adultery. Not for abandonment, not for abuse, not for violence, nothing. Maybe she married someone who committed adultery. And she left him. Maybe that is how one or more of those marriages cascaded down around her. Maybe she didn't have children. The Levitical law permitted husbands to leave their wives to find others who would bear children for them if their wives did not, because according to the law, being childless was always her fault, not his. Perhaps that is why she was left alone. Maybe her husbands, based on what we know of that culture, were, were, were very much and likely older than she was. Often a middle-aged man would take a much younger woman to be his bride, a girl. It was the norm. It was not the exception. She may well have been a widow numerous times over. Lifetimes were shorter back then. Maybe that is how she was left alone. If she was a widow by ancient law, the oldest brother of the man who died had the obligation to marry his former sister-in-law. And if he did, he did not have to call her his wife. Maybe that has something to do with the poisoning of the wine that came out a little bit later in time. Maybe that is why she was left alone. Whatever the reason, she was now in a relationship for the fifth time. Not by her own doing. And they all knew that in Sychar. The other women knew that. The whole town knew it. And, well, you know how people like to talk. Cheers. The clinking of glasses, the sounds of laughter and celebration faded long ago for the woman at the well. And so I want to ask you, do you feel it? Abandonment, widowed, grieving, rejected, ridiculed, thrown away, lonely. Do you feel her anger, her disappointment with life, her skepticism, her sorrow? Here is the word for the woman in our story today. Bitter. For the woman who came to the well in the heat of the day, cheers had long ago turned to bitterness. How many nights did she sit weeping at her bedside, reminding God that she did not deserve this life? How many times did she make plans to run, to leave, to to disappear, feel that? How many times did she ask God to take away that anger the, 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 the glares of the other woman, women, the snickering and the laughter when she looked down. And she always looked down to pretend to not see the staring eyes of her neighbors or to hear the gossip about her at the well, the jokes told about her behind her back. This is the story of our hidden figure this morning. A woman who was shunned and rejected by her community no more than a girl, marginalized for a life she never deserved, living in a world she'd rather escape. You know, marginalized people live by a different set of rules. They know where they can go, they know where they can show their face, and where they cannot. When you are marginalized, you know who you can talk to and who you cannot at least without consequences. Marginalized people know who accepts them and who does not. When you are marginalized, something something happens inside. Because when, when you have been excluded long enough, when you have been oppressed long enough, when you are told that you are not enough, that starts to sink in and you start believing it. It becomes part of what you think about yourself It becomes part of of what you think others' expectations are of you and it certainly becomes part of how they treat you. And not just others, but God too. Because when you start thinking, you deserve it. Well, bitter. Bitter. This is the woman at the well. Alone. Margin. Not any more or less sinful. Than anyone else who ever drew a drop of water from that place. Not any more innocent or guilty than you or I. Do you see her? Collecting water for her household long after all the others from the village had come and gone, only so she could be hidden. She wasn't part of the daily gathering in the morning. She was not in on the conversations and laughter and celebrations and chatter that others brought with them as they drew water. She clinked glasses with no one. This figure is alone, silent, bitter. Now Jesus and his disciples, they're traveling north out of Jerusalem. They're headed up to Galilee. To get to Galilee, you walked through a road that took you through Samaria. It was one of the routes you could take. It was the one that Jesus and the other disciples had chosen to take that day. It's important to know that Samaritans and Jews just didn't get along for lots of reasons. Most of those are not important for our story this morning. What you do need to know is that they disagreed intensely about where their church would be, and should be. And and where they would one day worship their Messiah. The Jews said Lombard. The Samaritans said Downer's Grove. <laughs> to the Jews, Samaritans were the outsiders. To Samaritans, the Jews were on the outside looking in. Jesus was a Jew. The woman at the well was a Samaritan. You see the problem. Now, just outside of the capital city of Samaria, there's a small town called Sychar. It's important because it was historical. It was a tourist destination for both Jews and and Samaritans alike because Jacob had dug that well a long time ago, and he drank from it with himself and his sons and his wives and his cows. And, And the land that Jacob eventually gave to Joseph was that land, that Joseph, the one with the fancy coat, It it was the story that made Sychar famous. They probably sold little Sychar shot glasses and tiny silver spoons in the town as people came through to visit the well. Lots of people from the area came to visit and, and remember Jacob's story there. But the outcasts, even the ones who lived there, came separately when no one else was around. Because marginalized people know where to go and when to show up and when to stay hidden and when to hide their face. So, see her there, our hidden figure at that well. See her face, the outcast, the marginalized, hidden figure standing at the edge of the well in the heat. Of the day to secretly to discreetly quietly just draw water and see Jesus there too traveling north to Galilee sitting on a rock near the well waiting for his friends who went into town to grab some lunch and souvenirs some say what happened next was just a chance meeting between the two but I don't think God works that way. Because what happened next wasn't a mistake. She comes to the edge of the well and ties her water jug to the end of the rope that was dangling over the open well. A glance, swift, inconspicuous, as the, at the man who sat nearby on the rock. She knew her place. She knew his. Nothing would be said. Nothing should be said. He would not acknowledge her He would certainly not look at her. He would most certainly not speak to her. And yet, despite her certainties of how all of this was supposed to go, she couldn't believe her ears. Listen, listen, see her face. I imagine it startled her at at first because she was not worthy to be noticed. She was not significant enough to be spoken to. But breaking the blistering heat of that day, he speaks. And clearly he speaks to her because there was no one else around. And and that made this even riskier. Marginalized people trust no one. Outcasts are alone for a reason. Perhaps she didn't respond the first time. But when he spoke again, and it was clear that the target of attention was her, she had no choice but to acknowledge him. Did you hear What he said, give me a drink. And those simple words, (laughs) those simple words blew up her world. And because of them, she could never be the same again. Because when Jesus speaks into our world, speaks into our lives, well, a response is not optional. Give me a drink. As I think about it, to be honest, this woman had nothing to lose. Because once you're on the outside looking in, it matters not how far away from the center you stand. So she calls him on it, an attempt to uphold that last shadow of self-respect that she could muster. How is it, sir, that you, a Jew, ask me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink of water? You know as well as I do that everything about this is backwards. She didn't expect an answer. He didn't need to say anything else. Now she thought, at least he knows who I am, hidden, but again, he speaks, I suppose you're right, but if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for a drink, and I would give you living water. What? Who was this guy? She had to be thinking. Okay, she decides I'll play along and she begins to press him. Sir, you don't even have a a bucket. How do you expect to draw this living water from this well? Are you better than our ancestor Jacob? I mean, at least he had a bucket. The stakes grow. Tension rises a little higher because he didn't laugh. It wasn't a joke now. So she wasn't a joke now either. Because he didn't walk away. For a split second, she thought it was as if she, he, he knew her. But how could he? Go ahead. Drink your water, he said. You'll be thirsty again. But if you drink the water that I can give you, you'll never be thirsty again. Well, he, he had now crossed the line, and she knew it. But it had gone now too far to stop. Fine, then she said, fine. Then you give me the water that you have so I don't have to come here every day to be laughed and stared at. That was just truth. And that's when it happened. His next words pierced her soul. Scholars have written about this for centuries and said that this woman's life changed because Jesus' next words convicted her of her sinfulness, called her out on her valueless and risky lifestyle, but I think not. God just doesn't work that way. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband. Come back, and I'll show you. And in that moment, she knew. She knew that he saw her, knew her, understood her, recognized her for who she was and the hiddenness of her story. All she could do now was to speak truth. I have no husband, she said. Tears stained her dusty cheeks as they rolled down her face. She desperately wanted only silence. But Jesus' words that he speaks next come and rattle her soul. I know, he said. You've had five. And here, here, my brothers and sisters, here is the grace. It was not judgment that he gave her in those words. It was not ridicule or disappointment or guilt that he laid upon her. It was understanding It was acceptance. It was love. You see, he knew her story, her truth. Yes, five husbands. We don't know anything behind those five, but he did. And what did he give her? Nothing but grace, living water, water that heals, that fills you up, that gives you life. It wouldn't surprise me a bit if the next thing that Jesus said as he glanced up and saw her tears coming down her face was, cheers, Cheers. Have you been there at that well, marginalized and bitter, alone, knowing that the way things look to the world are just not as simple as they seem, knowing that the truth is only something God could ever understand? I have learned that through the past two and a half years of adjusting to life as a disabled person. It's hard for me to even say that. My story to the edge of this well is tangled and painful. When plans are thwarted, when legs become wheelchairs, when dreams suddenly change to be very different than you imagined or desired, simple tasks once taken for granted, now become awkward, heat of the day, empty glass, challenges, and valleys? Have you stood there with that hidden figure at the well of discontent and disbelief and doubt and fear and uncertainty? If so, then listen, listen oh so close, my brothers and sisters, because the words next spoken are for you. Give me a drink, Jesus says. To you, he says that. Give me a drink. And what do those words do? Well, they gave that woman what Jesus always gives when he encounters an outcast, marginalized, frightened, bitter person. They gave her dignity. They gave her worth. They brought her from the margin To the middle. They acknowledged her simply for who she was. Loved, valued, accepted, child of the living God. That's grace. You know, it's not until the end of the story that that she finally gets it. Once she realized that the water Jesus offered was not from Jacob's well, but from the well of eternal life. She boldly then turns to Jesus to ask him to give her what she so desperately needed and desired, what only he could offer. If you have this living water, sir, then you give me a drink. Jesus, she said, give me hope that comes from knowing that you Have accepted me. That you love me too. Just the way I am. Give me the water that satisfies my thirst. For knowing that that your arms are wide enough open on the cross. To know that you died for me too. Not just for those on the inside. Not just for those who have position. Or great jobs. Or money. Or leadership. Not just for those who tell me that I'm not good enough. Or I haven't lived right, or I don't pray right, or I don't give enough, or I don't do enough, or I don't have faith enough. Jesus, give me a drink. Show me how to simply be enough for you. I can't imagine the courage it took for this woman to say what she said next. It was so risky. She put her very soul on the front burner of this conversation. Because if she was right, her life would never be the same again. And if she was wrong, well, it was just another, perhaps, final shove outward to the last outpost of her waning faith in a loving God. Maybe it was the tone of her voice, of his voice. Maybe it was the calm in his presence. Maybe it was the compassion in his eyes, or maybe it was just that he was Jesus. But she risks it. She says the most frightening thought that she could imagine. Sir, she says, I know the Messiah is coming, and when he does, then he will tell us everything. Oh, there it is. Without coming right out with the dangerous words she was thinking, she laid it out there. Mr. Jesus, you have offered me what no other person in all creation can offer. You have offered me living water. So tell me. Speak truth into this broken, marginalized world. Are you the Messiah or not? And with that question, the universe itself must have held its breath Angels in heaven, demons below, braced themselves for his response. For the divine identity of the entire creation now hinged on what he would say. She was no longer playing with words. She was now dancing on the margin of heaven. Soft enough to touch her heart, but loud enough to reach your ears this morning. I am he, Jesus said. You don't have to wait any longer. You don't have to look any further. Well, no wonder she ran back into town to tell everyone what she had heard. People who have been pulled back in from the margins of life just can't hold it in, you see. They have to tell someone. They have to tell their story. And so she did. She ran all the way back into town for getting her jar at the well, shouting all the way, come see the man who told me everything that ever happened to me in my entire life. Oh, of course he did, because we know who he is. You know, this is the longest one-on-one conversation Jesus ever has with anybody in the Bible. And for that reason and a few others we just discussed, I don't think that this woman is the real hidden figure in this story. The real hidden figure, well, they're all sitting here this morning. To the ones who have come to this well to hear and to see and to experience the presence and the promises of God made new. And it's new for all of us, I know. Hidden figures from Christ Church in Oakbrook who only months ago sent out. To this place to be the church in Downers Grove, hidden figures from Fountain of Life, sent out to be one church with people they just never imagined doing that with in the past. Hidden figures here today, seeking, searching, wanting to find the water that will quench that thirst for being loved and valued as children of God, right here, right here today. Hidden figures sitting next to you this morning. Across the globe and throughout history, there are hidden figures that God sends to remind us who and whose we are. Reaching from the passages of Scripture and reaching out from the arms of our neighbors, we see a truth that even the disciples could not see. To us this morning, the words are spoken again. You who were once far off, marginalized, broken, alone. Now you have been gathered into this place to sing your hearts out to the one who is, you heard it yourself, the Messiah. So friends, if you are here this morning looking into the well and wondering, looking for a straight answer, you don't have to wait any longer or look any further, because now you know who he is. And if you're still not certain, and you still have your doubts, well, then here is the grace that the hidden figure gives to you today. And this is it. It matters more who God says you are than the other way around. cheers. You know what? In a minute, these shades are going to go up. And and, and you know what you're going to see? Water. (laughs) Lots of water. If you drink that stuff, you're probably going to get sick. (laughs) And I promise you that you will be thirsty again. But if you drink from the other cup that he gives to you, well, I can't wait to see what God will do with us then. When the woman at the well tasted that water, it gave her life, and she ran as fast as she could to her family and her town and her neighborhood to tell them what she had seen and heard. She just couldn't help it. I guess that's what living water does to you when you drink it. My brothers and sisters, my fellow hidden figures in the amazing story of God's love, The God of living water is again at the well this morning, seeking to flood the driest parts of us with a water that will change us forever as individuals, as a church, as one church, learning to draw water from that well together. Drink deeply, my friends. Lift your heads, your mouths, your imaginations, your hearts to the God who calls you from whatever margin you find yourself, wandering to the very center of the living, breathing body of Christ. Precious Jesus, give us a drink. Will you pray with me? Blessed God, this indeed is the story for all ages. The story of a marginalized, hidden woman who speaks yet to us this day, calling us from the margins and fringes of history right into the very center of your grace and your arms. Lead us there always. And when it is we stray again and walk away, Grant us the courage to know that you will always be there waiting for us to come back. Blessed Jesus. Cheers. Amen.